Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, dear listeners. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by author, journalist, and podcast host, Stephen Dubner. Stephen and I talk about the lead up to his book, Freakonomics, his newish podcast, No Stupid Questions, meteorology, cryptocurrency, taste buds, positive psychology, predicting the future, what America gets right, what is love, and a lot more. In today's unqualified segment, our first call is from Ryan, whose partner of six months has recently and only tentatively come out. While Ryan is very understanding with regards to the emotions involved, he wonders how long they must keep their relationship a secret. Next to call in is Janie, who wants to relocate to a more affordable area with her husband and her son from a previous marriage. Unfortunately, Janie's ex won't allow the move, leaving her and her family in an unmanageable situation. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. Just look for the link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified. With your host, Anna Ferris. So, my name is Stephen Dubner, and I've been a writer pretty much my whole life of one sort or another. My first kind of life career type thing was as a musician. So, I'd played music from the time I was a kid, and then in college, got involved in a series of bands. And we got a record deal and moved to New York and started to make our first record. And it was thrilling. But then after having done that for like five or six years, it takes a while to like, you're terrible for a while as a band. You're playing other people's songs. You start writing songs. You get better. You get attention, blah, blah, blah. So by the time you get to the point where you're getting to make a record, you've been at it a while. And by then, I sensed that that was not the life I wanted forever and ever. Why? I mean, if you had to boil it down to the bumper sticker version, it would be too much of a good thing. It's like, honestly, it is a thrilling life. But to be in that environment, it's for me. This is just for me. It's too tempting to want to be adored. That's what it was, you know? <laughs> I fell right into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, this is tricky because every artistic medium is a little bit different right? Music is different from acting, is different from painting, is different from dancing. But in each one, you are putting yourself out there to some degree. And then the world can also come back at you to some degree. And I love the putting out part in playing music. I love performing live and recording and all that. I loved writing. I loved playing with the band. But I felt more and more we were doing it in order to be adored and I thought at the end of the day, I didn't think that felt like a healthy thing for me to do. And I also didn't want to be traveling all the time for the next million years. And I didn't want to be dependent on, you know, I wanted my success or my well-being to be a little bit more confined to what I could control as opposed to being, you know, a public person, honestly. Makes complete sense to me. I mean, when you're in show business as you are and many people that you know and have had on the show 
You know, I think when people who have not been around that, except from the consumer side, what they don't understand is that fame looks really good from the outside. And the benefits are obvious, but the costs are non-obvious. And so I'd say if there's a connection between what I used to do and what I do now, it is looking for non-obvious costs to things. And to be fair, non-obvious benefits. And so economics, which is not something that I studied formally ever. I was like a math and science kid, but not an economist by any stretch. But then I started writing about money and economics. I also wrote about religion and sports, all this stuff. I was working at the New York Times at the time. And then I met this guy named Steve Levitt, who's an economist at the University of Chicago. And Levitt is just a weirdo in the best possible way. He's very, very, very smart. And he has no interest in what the world thinks about what he thinks. So he just thinks thoughts. And when I met him and wrote an article about him that led to Freakonomics, he had written all these papers about things like collusion among sumo wrestlers and cheating teachers and how he caught them using forensic data from the test scores and so on. And I thought here was a guy who approached economics, academic economics, with a creativity and a kind of devil-may-care-ishness that I have always tried to have as a writer. I think I didn't have as much of that as he did. And so we teamed up, wrote a book, Freakonomics. It did better than we could have imagined. And then it spawned many things for many years, including to this day, Freakonomics Radio, which is my thing. Levitt actually started his own podcast last year. So that's what I do. And I love it because I get to ask the questions rather than answer them. I have an ego like everybody. I like to be adored at least a little bit. And I like to be paid attention to also like everybody. But I don't like to be the center of attention for too long. And so I really love, love, love coming up with a different question every week, which is what we do for Freak Radio, and then interviewing a bunch of really smart people who've thought long and deeply about it for years, sociologists and economists and psychologists and engineers and blah, 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 all that stuff. And then we put it all together and put out an episode that feels like I've written a chapter of a book, which is great because we do it every week. And because it's a weekly show, I don't get to write books anymore. It's really just radio now. And so, yeah, I answered a question that you didn't even ask. But if you had asked a question like, justify your existence as patchy as it may be, that would have been a decent answer to it. Maybe my question should have been, help me ask better questions. <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about the relevant stress of inflation mm. and on a broader sort of more general idea, I guess, in terms of how economics and sociology and psychology marry. What are you thinking of lately? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So honestly, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to things like inflation for two reasons. There's an army of economists out there who do that. And most of what they say is wrong. Why do you say that? Well, because mostly the world only wants to hear from economists when they want to predict the future about something. They want to tell me what's going to happen in the future, right? And it turns out that economists are just as bad as everybody else at predicting the future. Like, this is something that I think a lot of humans don't think about. But predicting the future remains, even in this late day and age in 2022, it's really hard. The perfect example is 2019. Yeah. And then in retrospect, there's like eight people around the world who raise their hands and say, well, you should read the monograph I wrote in 2014 about how a novel coronavirus could happen. And that's always the case. Similarly, after any big economic 
cataclysm, like a massive recession or something terrible that happens, there's always three people who raise their hand and say, well, you should see the paper I wrote in 1998 saying that if collateralized debt obligations did such and such, then there'd be a housing bubble, blah, blah, blah. And that's true. But by and large, predicting the future is really, really hard. I like how meteorologists do it, honestly, because they bake in a probability. So they say, like, there's a 30% chance of rain. And then if it doesn't rain, they're like, hey, <laughs> what's the problem? I said only a 30% chance. And then if it does rain, they say, well, I told you. It wasn't guaranteed, but there was a chance. I think we should all think about the future like that. It's not about hedging your bets. It's about thinking more probabilistically about the world and understanding what you can know and what you can't know. So when it comes to something like inflation or where housing prices or stock prices are going to go, especially maybe something as big and futuristic as technology and robots and AI and machine learning are getting so much better all the time that it doesn't seem we really need humans to do a lot of the work that humans have done for most of our recent history. So what happens if we get rid of all them? What do people do? How do they make money? Do their lives still have meaning if they don't have work? Like those are really, to me, fascinating big questions, but incredibly hard to predict. And so I don't therefore think that much about those economic issues like what's the stock market going to do? Why are gas prices so high? What's going on with inflation? But what you asked about, like, what am I thinking about? It was kind of summed up in the way you put the question, which is this commingling of economics and sociology and psychology. And so to me, all of those sciences, all of which are scientific-ish, right? They're not like chemistry. They're not like physics. They're different. They're social sciences. They're not as concrete in a way. But if you use the tools that those disciplines have built up over a few hundred years, I think then you can gain insights into why humans do what they do. And then if you can understand why humans do what they do, then you can theoretically make slightly better policy or products, or you can mate with someone who's more appropriate than someone you might think otherwise. That's what I try to do. And I should say, whenever possible, using data. In other words, really trying to find data sets that reflect real world behavior, as opposed to making stuff up, which unfortunately a lot of predictors do as well. About the idea of the meteorologists, I think that they pad their percentages according to <laughs> geography. <laughs> So where are you? You're in California? I'm in L.A., but I grew up in Seattle. Oh, well, there you go. So, you know, a 40% chance of rain. Means 80 in Seattle, right? Yeah. And then here, it's like a glimmer of hope. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. They're smart. I told you. They're really smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen, on your brilliant podcast, No Stupid Questions, what has been the question that you found most intriguing can you also give us sort of a trailer, essentially? Yeah. So No Stupid Questions was or is the first, I guess, spinoff podcast we made from Freakonomics Radio, or at least it's the first one that stuck. We tried a few others that worked for a little while. So yeah, so at some point I got talked into trying to start a Freakonomics Radio network. We had one show, Freakonomics Radio, that was doing really well and there was a business partner, our external partner, not within my company, who said, you know, the thing about podcasts is, and I'm sure you know this, Anna, is like the beauty of the format in a way is that the technology makes it really easy for people to follow you. And that may seem like a given if you're used to it. 
And it's certainly a given if you live a lot of your life online, and especially if you're a digital native. But like in the old days, like if you write books, every time you write a book, you have to tell the world, oh, I wrote this thing. It's called a book. You may remember them. You may not. And what you have to do is you buy them. You have to go somewhere, order it somewhere, and then take like 12 hours to read it. And every time you write a book, you have to hope that that whole chain of events can successfully happen. And sometimes it does, but mostly it doesn't. Like the period before, I had a writer friend who died sadly, but before he died, he used to talk about the period when this book that you've been working on for five years is getting ready to come out. And he called it the lull before the lull. It's like <laughs> nothing, nothing's going to happen. You're hoping there's a storm. I love that kind of expectation management. Exactly. Being in the film industry, that makes complete sense to me. It's very healthy, don't you think? Oh, yeah. So podcasting, one thing that's cool about it is if people like your show, then just by dint of the fact that they're following it on a phone, it makes it really easy to follow or subscribe and therefore the next episode goes to them. And as long as you don't suck, if you keep trying, then people will keep coming to you. And so in a way, making podcasts, but also other digital things, you own your audience in a way that in the old world, the gatekeepers owned the audience. It was the movie studio or the network or the book publisher or the newspaper. So that's awesome. So because we had a big audience for Freak Radio and because we kept trying to make it good, this guy said that we should start some more shows, started a few. We now have four weekly ones, but No Stupid Questions is the other one that I do. I co-host it with this amazing human named Angela Duckworth. She's Brilliant. The two of you are just wonderful together. For people who haven't heard of her, I would just encourage you, just look her up. She wrote a book a few years ago called Grit, which many people have heard of. There was a TED Talk that was seen by gazillions of people. And Angela is what she would describe as, as a positive psychologist. And I don't just mean like, yeah, like you go. It's actually a thing, positive psychology. And what that means is essentially focusing on strengths and on what's called the growth mindset, as opposed to focusing on barriers and problems. Now, you could say, God, that sounds so stupid and naive, right? Everybody has problems. Everybody suffers. Why on earth would you say you're going to focus on the positive elements? And the reason would be that the people who are in the positive psychology movement make the argument that it's more effective. In other words, yes, everybody has problems. Everybody suffers. But if you can try to grow what they call race your strengths, then in the long run, the data shows, this is their argument, it's really hard to prove empirically, that that is a better approach for most people than constantly dwelling on the problems and addressing how to solve those problems. Now, that's a big statement. But anyway, Angela Duckworth is kind of a cornerstone of the movement of positive psychology. Doesn't mean she's never negative. Doesn't mean she doesn't get angry. She's awesome. <laughs> she's so witty and she will serve it up. I love it. <laughs> she, does, she does serve it up. And she's very, very, very candid, which is amazing. So yeah, No Stupid Questions is a show in which we ask a question and try to answer it from the psychological research, a little bit of economics, but mostly just as two humans who are curious about the world. In terms of like my favorite episode, my favorite is always the one that we're just now making on anger. And I thought this was a really fascinating question. It basically boiled down to what is anger and how are you supposed to interpret it? And if you feel it a lot, should you try to experience it less? Is it bad for you or is it a signal? Like all emotions 
Angela and other scientists will argue, have a reason that evolution baked them into us. They're not useless. Even what might seem negative must have some benefits. And so it's trying to figure out what those benefits might be. In the last few hours, thinking about the questions that I wanted to ask you, I was thinking about the idea of what America gets right mm. and are there solutions? I like that question. The worst of all the bad things about me, the worst is that if you ask me a question, I'm almost inevitably going to think back to a Freakonomics Radio episode on the topic. Good. Because, you know, this is all I do. And We've been doing that show for 12 years now. And so we asked ourselves a question very much like you just asked, like, what the fuck America kind of, right? And I'll tell you just a little bit about how it came about, which was that I'd be doing episodes on whatever, healthcare, education, the relationship of labor unions to businesses, anything. And so often we'd end up interviewing some researchers who'd done a study in Scandinavia or occasionally Hong Kong or somewhere else, but usually Scandinavia. And they'd say, oh, well, yeah, we just do this. And you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like from every angle, it makes a lot of sense. Why don't we do that here? Like of all the rich countries in the world, America spends pretty much near or at the bottom among wealthy countries for the share of GDP that we spend for family welfare, meaning children and families, you know, just your basic stuff, which would include everything from childcare to schooling to parental leave, all these things, right? So you say, well, if you look at some Scandinavian countries and elsewhere, they spend a lot more. And yeah, that means people pay higher taxes for sure. And it also means that the social safety net is way stronger. And that seems to have a whole lot of really good ramifications. So why don't we do that? And the answer to all these questions, why don't we do that, is that we can't do it here because we're really different. You can't just slap some other country's really good social policy on top of a culture that's so different. So then we began to look at, like, why is our culture so different? And the why is a little bit hard. I mean, you can come up with it. We are a weird country. We're pretty new. We got really big and really successful really fast relative to most other countries. And our success has been driven by this outsized embrace of whatever you want to call it, entrepreneurialism or Wild Westism or individualism. So again, among wealthy countries, we score higher on individualism than anywhere else. Will you break that down a little bit for me? Turns out there are all different sorts of measures for individualism versus call it collectivism or socialism or something like social trust. So the countries that do really well by their citizenry also tend to have really high levels of social trust. One thought experiment you could imagine is you have your baby in a stroller outside a shop. You need to run in. The door's too small to get the stroller through. The baby's sleeping. Would you say to the next nice stranger that walks by, hey, keep an eye on my kid. I just need to run in and pick up the dry cleaning, right? That's one way you could think about measuring social trust. And it turns out that the U.S. used to be pretty high on that scale. And now we've slipped a lot, a lot, a lot. Scandinavia is relatively high. 
Some Western European countries are high, others are low. Australia happens to be pretty high. But the more individualistic you become, the less social trust you seem to have. And that makes it really, really hard to go to, let's say, voters and taxpayers and say, you know, I know you're an old childless couple, right? But the future of the country is in younger people. So how would you feel about spending, you know, three cents more per dollar on building a better social welfare network? And it turns out that that's a really hard argument to make here. I wonder when the shift happened. When was our sense of patriotism morphed? I mean, back in, I think, the 20s, I think the federal income tax was promoted by Donald Duck or Daffy Duck or something like that. <laughs> Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> and the idea was accepted. Yeah. Yeah. There was also a time when income above a certain level in this country was taxed at 90 percent because we'd gone through the age of the robber barons and America decided that it was really horrible to have that kind of concentration of wealth. And not only do you get concentration of wealth, but you get influence on the political system. So like we did a piece not long ago looking at corruption in China versus corruption in the U.S. And most Corruption indexes argue that China is way, 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 way more corrupt than the U.S. But this political scientist who looked at it a little bit differently said, well, it depends how you define corruption. If you define corruption as having enough resources to control institutions and individuals who make up institutions like the federal government, you may not call that corrupt, but it certainly looks corrupt to people who don't have those resources. And so... I think this country has gone through a number of phases, like in terms of countries of the world, we're still young enough to be sort of like an adolescent or late teenager. We have matured and we will continue to mature. But one of the best ways to improve yourself is to take a really honest reckoning of where you're not so good. And I would say right now, we still, and I lump myself in with all the rest of us, you know, 300 and whatever, 40, 50 million Americans, we all are pretty prone to think about what's in it for me, which is fine and natural and necessary. You know, you don't want a world where people aren't incentivized to do well by themselves and their families, but you need to balance that with what's good for everybody else. And, and this is where psychology comes in, there's really good research showing that one of the easiest and best ways to make you, any given person, feel better is to help other people. It's like, that doesn't sound right. Like, we humans are built to thrive and to support our families and our tribe and our countries, whatever. So why would helping people we don't even know, why would that make us feel better? And again, that might be an argument for religion because that wouldn't seem to need to be baked into us. And yet it is. And so that's an argument I would like to make if I were a politician to say, listen, you may come across a policy that doesn't do anything for you except cost you money or take away a little bit of liberty that you have. But you know what? There are millions of people out there who are going to benefit from it, and it's going to make you feel better at the end of the day. But even though that's science, I never hear that argument made, which is a bit sad. Well, I agree with you. And getting back to the idea of does anger serve a purpose? Yeah. The potential correlation, which I think you make in your podcast of like the 24-hour news cycle, my parents are totally guilty of watching <laughs> MSNBC all day long. And 
I feel my mom's agitation, you know? She can't understand, and it clearly is giving her something. I mean, it's entertainment for her that, you know, fertilizes the thing that she maybe wants to feel without her even recognizing this. Yeah, the problem is, A, those sentiments or that experience is addictive, right? In the same way that, like, watching any TV or whatever you love to do, I don't mean addictive in the sense that, like, you know, narcotics are addictive, although there are some similarities. But part of it is just, like, the more you invest in the story, right? You know these talking heads. You know the topics that get them really agitated. So you get invested in the story, and then you want to turn on the next day to see what's the next chapter in this story. So that's totally understandable. And media is really, really, really good at doing that. The problem is there is this thing in psychology, not in economics, called the power of bad. And it is a theory and an argument with data which shows that negativity, think of it as a taste bud, right? Instead of having salty and sweet and sour and bitter and umami, all you had was like a bad news taste bud and a good news taste bud. And it turns out that bad news or bad events or people being mean, whatever, have a much more salient and powerful effect. And so we do pay more attention to them and good stuff just becomes sort of like we put things in the bucket of good stuff like, yeah, of course it's good. I can wake up every day and not expect armed soldiers to knock through my door and search my house. But then you get acclimated to that or habituated is the word that psychologists like to use. Whereas bad stuff is always just different enough to make us feel like the whole world is really terrible. And the news media, of which I'm a part, you're a part, what we're doing right now is part of that ecosystem. It contributes mightily to that. TV network, you needed billions of dollars worth of equipment and offices and da 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 And so the gate was kept by people who really knew how to make a lot of money by doing what they do. And a lot of what they did was inherently negative because it works. It just works better. People don't want to turn on the news about how it was another day where the average life expectancy crept up by like one day per human. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. But if you look back at history at the last 100, 200,000, 2,000 years, that's our trend. Like almost everything is better. And yet we do focus on the bad. Now, you could also say, why would the power of bad be real? And one argument could be that humans have this capacity to solve problems, to help other people, to think about other people and so on. And If other people's problems weren't that salient for us, we would just ignore it and the world wouldn't get better. But instead, you do have people that get really, really agitated by adverse events happening in the world. And then they spend time trying to do things like come up with mRNA vaccines, which are an unbelievable scientific development that will probably yield much, much more medical upside over the coming years, having nothing to do with viruses. But mRNA technology will probably have to do with cancer treatment and many other treatments and so on. So how old were you when you first felt like you were in love? Mm. Do you mean romantic love? Yes. Okay. So I had a starter marriage. I had a marriage years and years ago with no children. So did I love her? Yeah. I had a starter marriage too. Yeah. 
during that first marriage, we never talked about the future. And it did feel like maybe a simplistic way to phrase it or to view it is the idea of a rehearsal of some kind. Uh, yeah. Or the societal check off the list. Right. So do you think that that is applicable in your circumstance? I would say what you just described was a very beautiful and apt description of my first marriage. And look, did we love each other? Sure. Let's say yes. Okay. Because why not? Sure. Yeah. It's not science in the way that we talk about science. There was a lot of affection. There was attraction. There was appreciation. There was joy. There was all that stuff. But I will say this, my now wife, Ellen, to whom I've been married for, gosh, I should probably know the year, like roughly 22 or three or four years. Do I love Ellen? Of course I do. But the question is like, what is love? Like, is love this stew of affection and connection and experience and history and shared emotion and sometimes opposite emotions and investment in each other and caring about each other and sometimes you know, getting incredibly frustrated with each other and having an emotional and life entanglement that you could have never even imagined impossible. If that's love, I am so madly deeply in love. But I think that's not the way that we tend to talk about love in society and especially in show business where you see a version that we all know, like we love the fairy tale version because it's amazing. You know how you visit a city that you've never been, but it's a great city and you're staying in a hotel in the center of town and you're there mostly to have fun or maybe do a little work, but you're still in the center of town. You're eating these great restaurants and you think, oh, my God, I should move here. <laughs> and then you realize that if you move there, you're not going to live in that hotel uh -huh. and you're actually going to live a 30 minute commute away from everything. And you're like, oh, God, this place is terrible. Yeah. So that trip to that city is like the version of love that I think a lot of people have when they see it dramatized, right? It's only the upsides. And then maybe there's a little drama, but then things kind of work out at the end. Whereas those of us who've actually lived life know that actual love and relationships are much more complicated, much thornier, but also what the hell else would you do with your life? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, 
Brian, how are you? Hey, Ryan. Hi. I'm here with Stephen, and he is just wonderful. Hi, Ryan, and thank you, Anna. Hi, Stephen. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Brian, thank you so much for your letter. Will you tell us what's going on? I've been seeing somebody for about six months, and that's kind of why I wrote in. He is recently divorced, father of two that isn't out. So it's just been a little bit of a struggle navigating those waters. How old are the kids? They'll actually be three and six this weekend. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. Is he older? No, I'm actually older by like nine months. Okay. So in your letter, you wrote that you've been in three arguments and you're starting to feel anxious about the relationship in general. Yeah. Do you feel that way still? I know that kind of thing fluctuates from day to day. <laughs> it does. The last one was pretty heavy, and then he was gone for 10 days. So it was a lot of me stewing in everything and not getting kind of like the affirmations that I needed. Since he's been back, though, it's been a lot better. Like, he's just so much more communicative than he was before. Oh, good. Yeah, things are on the up and up with that, for sure. Good, good. Okay, so that's good news. So what are the outstanding issues? And I think early on in a relationship, especially if it's incredibly intense, you have these big, devastating blowout fights. Yeah. That you kind of get over. And if the pattern doesn't continue, you don't really want to revisit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the case, do you think? It's just kind of not wanting to feel like I have to go back into the closet. I came out of that beast in 1999. <laughs> I don't need to go back in. I haven't pressured him to come out or tell anybody. I was like, that's your personal journey. You do that on your own time if you want to do that. And, you know, he's told some friends and stuff like that. And, you know, recently he told his brother and that didn't go very well. It didn't? His friends are totally fine. No, not with that with his family right now. It's not going well at all. This is a lot for you. I mean, I want to be there for him. Yeah. Kind of help him out as I like, you can come hang with my family. <laughs> it's totally fine. Are you feeling like this has a future? And how does that make you feel? I mean, I feel like I just have like a lot of patience and it weighs heavy with just him tensing up in public or, you know, not being able to, you know, touch him or grab him the way I want to. Because like he lives in a smaller town outside of Kansas City. And he would just kind of tense up and get nervous if we're like downtown walking somewhere or he kind of always brings up like if we run into somebody, like, how's that going to go? And I'm like, I can see that side of it. If I were in that situation, we wouldn't be able to futurize as a couple. Yeah, I think he's doing the work, though, because he talks about the future. And, you know, I like the fact that he talks about a future. But, you know, I still have my concerns because I definitely want to be able to be open and in an honest relationship and not have any sort of need to hide it from anybody. And how often do you guys see each other? When he doesn't have his kids, he's at my place or vice versa. So like three days a week. Does his ex know anything? Nope. Steven, this is where you take over. <laughs> wow. Yeah, thanks. You're welcome. It's an easy one. <laughs> yeah. So Ryan, first of all, even though I've only just met you and only on Zoom, you seem like an amazing person, which is great. Oh, thank you. You seem kind and understanding and smart. So I'd say that's a really good starting place. So it's an interesting conundrum, but it's definitely a conundrum, right? right. Because for all the obvious reasons, and I'm sure some non-obvious ones that we haven't even gotten to, how did you guys meet? We met on Bumble. Okay. And at what point did you start to get a sense of the complications that you're describing now? I would say like maybe a month and a half to two months in. 
Okay, right. And did you resent that you didn't learn earlier or no? No. Okay. So one thing that I've learned from my psychologist friends, which I'm very much not a psychologist, <laughs> is that secret keeping is really costly. Yeah. And I'm sure you know this, but it'd be like trying to take a test while worrying that you left your dog in the car with the windows rolled up. Right. Like, you only have so much bandwidth. And so, like, when I hear you describe him being concerned about, like, let's say you're walking and you want to hold hands or something and he doesn't, like, just thinking about the cognitive bandwidth and the energy that's going into him thinking about that, it's a lot. Yeah. So, look, I am probably the single worst person in the world to give anybody advice about anything. It's just not what I do, <laughs> advice. But if I were to pretend that I weren't the world's worst person at it, I would say that part of the work, and this may be what's going on, I think of it like being on a scale. Like, I don't want to say that secrecy is negative necessarily, but just for the sake of comparison, picture like, you know, when you're learning positive and negative numbers in school, and like the negative numbers are down there below zero and the positive are up above. I feel like he kind of needs to get back to zero cognitively and emotionally before you guys can get to where you want to go. Right. That's what I think. And you may know that and he may know that. And it's a lot easier to say it, especially me who doesn't know you. But I do know that cognitive load is a real thing. You see it like all different areas of research, like in the healthcare field. Like there was this research paper we talked about not long ago about how surgeons do worse work on their birthdays than any other day of the year, only because they're distracted because they're thinking about like, oh, is my family going to throw me a party? Did they get the present I wanted to? Like our brains are amazing, but they're also kind of crap at the same time. <laughs> like they can only process a couple things. My advice would be if you want a future with him, which it sounds like you may, I can't tell quite, then it is amazing that you are as understanding, shrewd, smart, and supportive of him as you are, but that part of that understanding and shrewdness needs to go toward helping him get to a place where secrecy and shame and anything else like that with his family, it sounds like maybe, can be dealt with head on. It doesn't mean it's going to be resolved to everybody's satisfaction. Right. But if you don't try to resolve it, then it remains that cloud that's really hard to get out from under. Yeah. I think that is just brilliant. The burden of the secret, it's like a 300-pound backpack. <laughs> when you guys were arguing, was it about this issue? What were the arguments about? And do you worry about the content, the genesis of the arguments? The arguments were <laughs> just kind of based off of not a lot of follow-through. And then me just getting a little frustrated by the lack of follow through on stuff. But within the past like month, it's just gotten so much better, just communication wise. Oh, that's good. I think like me talking to him about like, you need to be communicative. That's my love language. <laughs> like I have to hear what you have to say. Ryan, can I ask you, when it comes to arguing, are you good at having arguments? And what I mean by that is like having a productive argument, like there's tension or there's a problem. Are you good? Do you feel that like, expressing what's causing the problem and trying to solve it? I mean, there has to be resolve as quickly as possible. And I just value my communication skills. And I'm not like getting it back when I'm being clear as day. And I'm just getting like foggy stuff back. That's when I just like stew and all these holes open in my head and I fall through each one of them and it's awful. So do you feel when he doesn't reciprocate with clear communication with you, do you feel it's because he doesn't want to or isn't able to? 
That's a good question. I don't know. Whenever, because, you know, he's always telling me not to worry about anything, but I have terrible anxiety. So that just happens. And I feel like he's able to, but he like constantly, almost constantly says that his actions speak louder than his words. And, you know, I have to take that, which is fine. Do you believe it? Yeah, I think him coming out to people in his life, like I told him, I was like, don't think that you have to do that because of me at all. And he's all like, well, it's not because of you. Like, you're part of why I want to do it. And that kind of makes me feel good, but also like a little selfish. Like, I'm not telling him to do these things. That's your journey. You do not have to do this for me. There's so much going on. Do you feel like you can weather these storms and do you want to? Because it's a lot for you too. Oh yeah. I mean, I certainly haven't ever felt this way about anybody before. And I know it's only been, you know, six months, but I don't know. That connection's just there. The good outweigh the bad. And I think it's heading in a really great direction. Well, it sounds like it. I mean, he had the courage to come out to some people and his brother, which must have been huge because, of course, he knew how that was going to go down. Yeah. I think from what I'm gathering from you that he's loving you in the way that you want to be loved and you're able to love him in the way that he wants to be loved, right? Yeah, I think so. You could make the argument, I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but you could make the argument that if you were to run like experiments on a hundred new couples and see whether it's better to have arguments like you've described early, like really intense arguments that get at like, who am I? What am I doing here? What am I looking for? Yeah. My guess is that if you ran that experiment, which probably nobody ever will because it's not really ethical or kind, my guess is that couples that have those arguments early do better than the ones that are in, I'm going to be my kindest, most unargumentative self because I want to show my most cordial self or whatever. And that I would imagine the finding would be that there's a real upside in being that candid and honest from the beginning for two reasons. One is you really learn who each other are, but also everybody argues and everybody gets angry and everybody gets upset. And if you don't do it or show that until one or two or five years into a relationship, then it's going to be too heavy by then. Yeah, I agree. So I actually think that you being both loving and supportive while also being very direct about this is what I need to say now and I need you to respond to that. I mean, who knows whether this works out for the long run. I hope it does if that's what you both want. But it sounds like you're doing the right thing. That's all I have to say. Oh, good. Yeah. I think you sound like you're really understanding. I think there's nothing more to be done, sadly. Just time. Yeah. Ryan, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you, Stephen. Great to meet you, Ryan. Good luck. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Stephen, I really like how you approach that. Oh, you're so nice to say. I like how into it you are. I think it's amazing, actually. Thank you for your time, truly. Of course. Yeah, no, this is a blast. I love it. I think so, too. I wanted to ask you about the correlation between, like, something significant historically. I enjoy history. It comforts me Hmm. because I think there is pattern recognition. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I love reading history because, yeah, you do look for patterns and you see like, oh, well, you know, maybe we're not as stupid or hopeless as I think we are in this moment. Because if I look back 100 years, like if you look back at Congress, like in some parts of the 19th century, like they were having knife fights on the floor of Congress. It was way worse than now. So if you look at the way that society behaves or that politics is going or the economy I hate to sound like one of those Pollyannish libertarian bro bros who just says, hey, everything is great and getting better. Everybody should shut up about the problems, right? I don't think that's the right approach. I think the right approach is to say humankind has an unbelievable capacity to keep progress moving forward and an unbelievable capacity to have understanding that not everybody shares in those gains equally and to have empathy for people who don't have the opportunity to get those gains. To me, that's what this whole enterprise is about. If you want to approach that from a religious standpoint, great. Economics, great. From the arts, great. Whatever you can do to try to make your little corner of the world a little bit better while acknowledging that the world has gotten a lot better, to me, that's a decent way to be. So when you look at history, like, what the hell is the story with the U.S. and healthcare insurance? Like, do you think there ever will be Medicare for all? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do know the reason that we have such a contorted healthcare system in our country is due in some large part to this bizarro, bizarro quirk in history from, I think, World War II when after the war, there were wage controls put on firms, basically salary caps. Firms couldn't pay employees more than a certain amount. I think I'm getting this right. I'm probably getting parts of it wrong. And so what happened is healthcare coverage or insurance was added as a perk. Was this a federally mandated program? The wage controls, I believe, were federally mandated. How it happened that firms started paying for people's health care. I don't recall how that happened. I seriously doubt that was federally mandated. I think what happened is there was something written into the tax code ultimately where companies could get reimbursed, essentially. They'd get a tax break. In other words, let's say you were making $30,000 a year in your job in 1957 and your company is going to give you a health care coverage plan for you and your family that was worth the equivalent of, let's say, $1,000, the firm was allowed to write off that $1,000 as a wage, essentially, without having actually lifted someone's wages. But the result of that was that we became one of the only countries in the world like ours, maybe the only country in the world like ours at all, where health care is tied to your employment, And if you think about that for even half a second, you think, wow, that's really stupid. Like, even I can think of at least two reasons why that's really stupid. Number one, just think about what that does to people who want to either change jobs or go off on their own and do something. Think about all the innovation that is killed by people needing to stay where they are because they have healthcare coverage. So that's number one stupid. Number two stupid is... Why do you want to take every company in America, whether they make toilet brushes or computer chips or podcasts, and turn them into a healthcare administrator? It just doesn't make any sense. But because it's the system we've got, we're pretty used to it. And so it's like a lot of things that you're used to. You stop to ask questions about it. And when you try to find a solution to a problem, you don't look to the root cause. The root cause here being that we kind of set it up wrong in the first place. You instead look at the symptoms like, oh, well, 
you know, hospital bills are too high. But why are hospital bills high? Hospital bills are high because we have this amazing technology that's being invented that your healthcare provider wants you to have access to. So that's a case where history can be illuminating but frustrating. Some people call it path dependence. Once you go off on a path, even if it's a bad path, it's really, really hard to reverse course. And we do that a lot. Will you tell me a little bit about the crypto community, a world of which I do not know? <laughs> the large question that intrigues me is the philosophy. And if you think the idea of is this community ultimately optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, that's a good question. So we did really, really, really try to understand that question. We did a three part for Freakonomics Radio. And if I had a shorthand that I would say, what I learned is that there are a lot of truly brilliant people who see, let's call it blockchain technology or cryptocurrency technology as potentially an incredibly powerful and pro-social underlying technology that could make a lot of things easier and better in the world. Everything from banking to real estate to art and not just the financial components of those things, but just the transactional components. The problem is, like a lot of new technologies, a lot of the attention in the beginning goes to the most heightened examples or parts of the technology. And so in the case of crypto, it's a very unusual setup in that cryptocurrencies themselves, the coins, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else, Ether, is that it is itself a product or a byproduct of the technology. In other words, the blockchain technology could not exist without the tokens. The tokens, therefore, inevitably become more valuable over time, which means more and more people want to buy and or sell them. But that market has gotten super, super frothy and bubbly. And so you see a lot of people making some money and you see a lot more people losing a lot of money. When you focus on that part of it, which is an inevitable focus right now, because a lot of cryptocurrencies have lost a ton of value. There are crypto banks that are going under. There are crypto exchanges that are in trouble. So right now we're watching a lot of carnage and it's very easy to say, oh, yeah, I knew it. It's all a fraud. It's all a bubble. But I don't believe that to be true. I do think there's a lot of potential good use cases for blockchain technology, but it's hard to pin people down on what those use cases are. We interviewed all <laughs> these people and we'd say like, okay, let's assume I believe you that blockchain technology will be as elemental to society as electricity was or the internet was. Give me an example. What can it do? And then the example that this one person who's in the business of raising money to invest in crypto said, well, you could use the blockchain to take your excess Wi-Fi bandwidth and sell it to your neighbor. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then yes. we'll cure <laughs> cancer in the afternoon and then... You know, right, stop right. famine by the evening. So anyway. But what's interesting, I think, about it is if this succeeds and 20 years from now, it is morphed into what the Internet now feels like as opposed to 1995, it does break down a sense of national identity. It's sort of solidifying the idea that we are very much an international world. And then what are those repercussions? If we don't feel a deep sense of allegiance or patriotism towards our country, does that mean we won't fight a war? Maybe it's good. 
the idea of patriotism has always been kind of intriguing to me? That's a really, really good question. I love that question. Again, I'll go back to the fact that predicting the future is impossible. And I would say, I don't know. Right up front, Anna, I don't know what it would mean. But here's how I'd start to think it through. And we are sort of seeing this right now with crypto. Most countries now, including the U.S., with this thing called the Digital Dollar Project and China, I don't know the name of their digital currency project, like China banned Bitcoin and they banned crypto mining. And some people thought it was because whatever, they didn't want that element of capitalism. No, it's because they want to control a digital currency because they're a big, powerful country. China is one of the most powerful institutions that's ever existed, as is the U.S. right now. So when you say, like, could it denationalize the world? My initial response is, wow, yeah, it could. And wouldn't that be amazing? But then my second response is, a country like the U.S. or like China or anywhere that has a central bank and institutions that it controls the way they want to, there's no way that they really, really want to surrender any of that power. It makes sort of the idea kind of moot, right? I mean, I like the upsides of what you're proposing, but when I think about the incentives it would take to get us to there, I mean, look, look at climate change as a parallel. There are some people who say there's more collaboration around the world now in thinking about how to address pollution and climate change, right, than there was 10, 20 years ago, but mostly not. Like, mostly not. Like, China itself, I don't blame China for this either. Like, China and India, they say to the U.S., like, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys say we want to go all wind and all solar within 10 years. That is absurd. You guys had 200 years of burning all this stuff to get rich. And now we are just starting to get rich. And we have a lot of oil to burn to get there. We have a lot of gas and a lot of coal to burn to get there. Why should we sacrifice at this moment in time? And so China right now is building all number of coal burning power plants, which is, you know, bad for the air, bad for the sky, bad for human physical health, but you understand the incentives of why they want to do that. So I think sometimes if you pay too much attention to the world, like you were talking about with your mom and MSNBC and I have a lot of people in my life who I feel pay too much attention to different parts of the news and the world. If you pay too much attention to it, it does seem hopeless and it does seem paralyzing. And sometimes I just like to flip it and say, rather than enumerate all the idiocies and problems, what do I want to happen? What would I like my life and the lives of my family members and my community? What would I want it to be a little bit more or a little bit less? And how can I help get us to there? And that brings me back really to Angie Duckworth and grit and no stupid questions. Is like, I think there's a lot of value to be placed on having a growth mindset. Like, how can I personally and my family, my country get a little bit better every day at doing a certain thing and focus on self-improvement as opposed to, God, we're all screwed. But that can be a really hard sell, I found. It's true. We like the nest of disgruntlement or whatever. I wonder why it is unfortunate. Have you ever noticed we have disgruntlement, but nobody ever talks about gruntlement? I was just, yes. No joke. Our language has many, many, many more ways to be negative and scared and fearful and blame people as opposed to praise and feel joy and all that. Well, Stephen, talking with you, I'm in a state of gruntlement. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Ditto. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. 
flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Janie. Hi. Thank you so much for your letter. I'm here with Stephen Dubner, who is incredible. Hi, Janie. Nice to meet you. Hello. Janie, will you tell us what's going on? So I was previously married and I have a son that I share with my ex-husband, obviously divorced him, got remarried. But the issue I'm having right now is my husband is kind of struggling with where we live. Like financially, we live in a very, very expensive area. And we've been talking about trying to relocate. My ex is completely against the idea I had a few job offers that I approached him with, but he's just really not open to the idea. And he doesn't want you to move. Right. How close are you guys right now? We live about a half hour to 45 minutes apart. And then he has my son or our son like every week. He gets to see him like one to two days. How old is your son? He is eight. Okay. So you're in it. Yes. Is your ex with anybody now? Yes. Yeah, he's been with someone for probably around four years, I think. They just bought a house together. Would you say your ex is mad at you? I feel like he holds some stuff against me. And I think it kind of feels like he likes to have some sense of control over the situation still. And I think that probably bothers my husband because our lives right now are tied to a place because of the situation. Janie, first of all, I'm sorry for your situation. It's got to be hard. And I'm sure that even if you could wave a magic wand and do the things that you think would fix everything, you know, life is complicated. Right. And then, you know, when people are together, then they split up. And then when they get with someone else again, it's like the math becomes a lot more complicated because there's literally just more emotions involved. You know, you've got your husband He's got his new partner and so on. And just as you're trying to resolve things or make things better with your new husband, now he's got his own. Your ex has his own path. So like, I think what's great is that you've got your eye on the prize, which is your son. Yeah. Because like you guys, you're all going to be fine. All the adults. And even if you're not fine, it's your own fault. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For you guys... You have control over your situations. You have autonomy. You decide where you live, where you work, what you spend your money on and so on. When you're a kid, you know, and you don't have that autonomy for obvious reasons, it's so, so, so important that he's made to feel that he is the center of your not just attention and emotions, but like your effort. 
So from what I've heard, he must very much feel that from you, which I think is a huge, strong positive. Yeah. Can I just ask, does your son enjoy spending time with his dad? He does. He does. Okay. So there's not any kind of emotional distress or anything like that? No. Okay. So what would happen if you were to say to your ex, and maybe you said this, to say, look, you know the situation. This area is really expensive. And for my new family, it's a hardship to have to stay. We have opportunities to go elsewhere to have better career development, let's say, and lower cost of living. But for our mutual sake, for the sake of our son, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice to stay. But why don't you subsidize that? Literally. Yeah. And maybe you've said that already, but what would happen if you'd said that? I didn't really take that approach. I did come to him and explain the situation. I was trying to ask for a little bit of grace and understanding. And he kind of came back at me with, we made our own decisions and career choices. So like, it's not his fault that we're not in as good of a place that he is. I went to school later in life. My husband went to school later in life. So like we both, you know, got a little bit of a late start. So you're kind of at the beginning of developing your careers now yeah. when the salaries are not as high. That's a stressful time. I have no idea if this kind of logic or request would work at all. But to me, it's not crazy to say like, look, you know, we all want the same thing here, which is we want our son to thrive. We want our son to feel the love from me and my husband and you and your partner and the way to do that is to be geographically together the way we are now. But we have this problem with the cost and with the lack of opportunity here. And so one compromise, I mean, you could even pitch it to him like this would show a lot of grace on your behalf, would just be to help us out. Again, you may not even be comfortable asking that. And maybe that's not the right question or proposal but sometimes when you're dealing with an issue that sounds like it's mostly emotional, sometimes it can be helpful to make it a little transactional. Yeah. Janie, are you getting child support from him now? Yes. I think it's incredibly practical advice, especially when there is an exchange happening. In reading your letter, it made me think that there were two issues. Yeah. One, it sounds like the issue with the ex in terms of your son and moving but it also sounds like there's issues with your new husband that you guys are in a stressful patch right now. Will you elaborate on that? Yeah, it just feels like because he's just overworked. And I think that has just brought its way into our relationship. It's just like a constant topic. Like he works between like 12 and 14 hours a day and then oh. you know, commuting on top of it. And it's just all to like provide. Is he channeling his stress to this issue? I think a little bit because it just kind of keeps coming up about how he's very unhappy with the situation. And he thinks the solution is moving. Pretty much location-wise too. Like there's no space here and everything's just like very tight and every sense of the matter, you know, just stressful. I feel your stress. <laughs> and I wonder how much you must feel in the middle of this. Is he resentful towards your kid at all? I don't think so. I mean, he's not really able to spend a lot of time with him. Right. Do you guys want to have kids? Have you talked about that idea? When we met, we decided that we were good with our situation. So it kind of worked out because neither of us was looking to have any more kids. I want to make sure, you know how like a bride on her wedding day focuses on the wrong flowers when the big issue is like, should I marry this person? Yeah. <laughs> Which Stephen, you had a wonderful <laughs> podcast about not so long ago. <laughs> but I just don't know if moving is the complete solution for you guys. I don't know. 
usually things don't quite work out that cleanly. Yeah. If you guys did move and you were able to save some money, maybe then the question is, how do you get your ex to agree to that? Which I think Stephen's proposal is really strong. And depending on his temperament, you may want to talk to a lawyer. I have consulted with several. (laughs) Oh, good. And what did they say? A lot of them have basically said, your situation sucks. (laughs) And there's not much you can do if he doesn't want to come to some kind of compromise. So it's either going to be, we stay where we're at, or come to some sort of agreement, or we have to go to court again. I wonder how well you've laid your case out to your ex. I don't know. (laughs) Is it hard for you to tell him what you need? It's not. I mean, when we got divorced, it was a little ugly because he felt a certain way towards me. Do you think this is... I'm not saying he's necessarily doing anything wrong because he wants his son to be close, but do you feel that the way he's approaching it is still a little bit payback? Sometimes I feel that way and I feel like it's selfish on his part. And it's hard for me to judge that, I guess. But whenever he talks about it, it's always kind of his terms. Or like, I need my time or my schedule with him is going to get disrupted if you guys do that, if you leave. Does he make you feel like small as a mom in any way? No, it's more like he's not a bad dad in any way. But I feel like my son would be much better suited with me and to stay with me. You're trying to accomplish a really difficult thing here. You're trying to kind of accomplish two goals, really, right? You're trying to satisfy the requirements of the agreement, which is a legal agreement. And most states have these things to adjudicate with exactly this kind of thing. Yeah, It feels like the situation with your husband is making you both miserable. Is that kind of right? Lately, yeah. It's putting just a lot of stress on everything. Because I feel like kind of helpless in the situation. Yeah. And then I feel like I'm being put in the middle of something where like to an extreme, I have to like choose between them. Yeah. It's like two people you can't live without. So, Mm. Janie, are there things that your son and your husband love to do together? When there's time, he definitely shares some interest. Like my son, I can tell, really looks up to my husband because he tries to do things that are a little bit more active. Okay, this is going to sound absurd. (laughs) And this is something Anna and I were talking about earlier, what's called positive psychology and the growth mindset as opposed to focusing on the problems because the problems are like right in your face. They're easy to identify, right? And understand the problem is they're hard to solve. So sometimes you can think about coming at it from the other side, like what are some potential good things that we can magnify, right? As opposed to like diminish the difficult things Are there some good things we could magnify? So like, okay, this is where the absurd thing comes in. But what if, just what if, and I'm not saying this solves anything really, but it's just a thought. Like, what if you could kind of manage a conversation or an agreement whereby your son and your husband agree that they're going to form a bond or a pact where starting just like half hour a week, your husband is going to learn to play the video game with your kid which I did, by the way, with my son. And it took me a lot longer than a half hour because I was really bad at it. And in exchange for that, it doesn't have to be quid pro quo, but it can be. It can be kind of fun or you can even bribe and pay. And like for every half hour video we play together, we're also going to ride bike together for half an hour or some version of that to kind of get everybody a little bit more invested in like the positive things that give joy, the things that create a bond. Because it sounds to me like moving is probably just not viable from what you've said. And so, you know what, at a certain point you have to say, okay, there's like something in the negative column 
that's going to remain in the negative column. And we can try to nudge it a little bit more toward positive. But what if we take our focus off that and put our focus instead on the positive things, the things we like, the things that give us joy or the things that give us release, or even the things that help us forget about our problems Yeah, and magnify those a little bit in a way that if you kind of co-mingle you and your son and your husband together, that maybe there's something that can literally, you know, take your mind off the difficult parts and make the whole collective experience a little bit better. I love the idea. (laughs) Janie, I think that the circumstances will change. They just will. Yeah. But this might be the hardest time for you to be generous of spirit, which I guess means that even though your husband may be kind of neglecting your marriage or your relationship because of the circumstances right now, it's just hard for him, which means it's really hard for you. But He's not in a place right now where he can willingly come home and be a generous partner and a generous lover and give his full 50%, which means you may have to give like 65 to 70 perhaps. And I love Stephen's advice. I think that you should tell him how much your son looks up to him and what an important figure he is in your life. And I would nurture those things. Your husband will feel purposeful and good about nurturing this relationship with your son. When I hear you talk, and because we're on Zoom and I can see you and there's, you know, facial language and so on, and forgive me if I'm just wrong and interpreting this wrong, but it seems as though you are blaming yourself for a lot of this and you did not do anything wrong. Thanks. (laughs) I do though. I feel like... Yeah, I feel it in you. And furthermore, when you got married, your husband understood the situation. Now, he may not have been able to project it out to now. And I understand that life is complicated. But I think for your son's sake, for your husband's sake, even your ex's sake, but especially for your sake, you should just remind yourself you have done nothing wrong. And so you don't need to operate from a position of apology what you are operating from is a position of trying to make the best of a difficult situation. That should be like a mantra for all of us. There's so much guilt wrapped up in parenting, especially if you've gone through a divorce with a child. I think you tell your husband, baby, I know that you have been working so hard and I'm so sorry that you have all this stress. I know that you're miserable and I love you so much. And I want to like make you chicken cacciatore or something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, we could do a chicken piccata. It's easy. You just pound some chicken, a little white wine, a little butter, capers. I just think, unfortunately, the easiest solution for your happiness right now is probably through acts of generosity. It's hard. Yes. <laughs> like Stephen said, you have nothing to apologize for. Life is short and... We'll all be dust soon. <laughs> Thanks for that nice cheery yeah. thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the Anna Ferris philosophy of life. We're going to be dust soon. Let's make chicken cacciatore tonight. Exactly. <laughs> You're also not responsible for other people's happiness. Yeah. I think that's a big thing too. Like you can try to accommodate and love people, but you're not responsible for other people's happiness generally. It's very tempting to think that you are. It's like keep pouring everything. It exhausts you. I feel it. I feel it in you. <laughs> you are like Tired. running on fumes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, babe. <laughs> 
depending on how your dynamic is, he may anticipate your stress. Yeah. So it'll be odd for him if your approach is just like deep breath and I love him. I know he's about to arrive. Your acts of generosity. Yeah. If he doesn't know how to absorb that for a minute, that's okay. Yeah. If it feels like the right path, keep going. If he doesn't kind of get over that and start to extend generosity as well, then there's like maybe another phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like I think he assumes that I'm angry a lot because he's gone a lot because I have been before frustrated and you know, especially during like COVID, I was by myself with like my son and it just was so much. And like, I just wanted to see him at the end of the day and he was exhausted. So I think he just kept that in his head that like, I'm going to just be like angry and bitchy as soon as he walks in the door. So he's expecting that and projecting that on top of his own stress already. So there are these researchers that I'm friends with. They do all this work on how to help people have better lives. Mostly they focus on children who aren't accomplishing what they could be in life because they don't have the advantages that other children do. They don't have families that support education as much. They don't have resources and so on. And so they're always looking for kind of shortcuts, like not cheating shortcuts, but just like ways to think better and one research project that Katie Milkman did called the Fresh Start Effect. And it turns out that we all respond to fresh starts incredibly well. You know, it's why people make New Year's resolutions. But like, I've noticed that every time I move somewhere and I don't have all the normal clutter that I'm used to, and there's just like a chair and some books, I'll sit and like read books that I would never read. Like whatever the start is, It's not like it always works for everyone all the time at a very high level, but it definitely on average works for everybody, which is that even when there's just like a little bit of change in the calendar or the weather, somehow our brain allows our emotions to reset. So I think what Anna was saying about like how it might be he's expecting one thing when he comes home or you're expecting one thing. If you can sometimes just literally change the pattern, change your routine, make a fresh start in some way, it's like an invitation to break a habit, to form new habits and things like that. So I really like that idea, even if it's something really small, but I think there's real power there. Get onto YouTube, find out how to make chicken piccata. (laughs) Super easy. I think that might do it actually. Yeah, good. See what happens. Janie, I'm so rooting for you. And it was nice to meet you. Good luck with your whole family. Thanks again, Janie. Thank you. Good luck, Janie. Bye. Bye, Janie. Bye. Stephen, you are just fantastic. Oh, that's nice of you to say. I can't tell you how enjoyable this has been. Oh, thanks. Me too. I loved it. I love your show. I love talking with you. I think you're awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Bye. Bye. 